0: The word uncanny refers to something that is strangely familiar, as opposed to something that is simply mysterious in some way. There are disagreements about how and why this particular feeling manifests. Freud thought that the feeling of uncanniness presented us with a mixture of familiar and uncomfortable, which triggered unconscious, repressed impulses. Jacques Lacan thought that the uncanny put us in situations in which we couldn't easily distinguish bad from good and pleasure from displeasure which makes us experience anxiety in the presence of uncanny things, since we're not able to easily put these things into mental boxes. There's also the related concept of abjection, which is usually defined as the state of being cast off, and which is interpreted by philosopher and novelist Julia Christiva to describe the subjective sense of horror that an individual experiences when confronted by the breakdown of one's own corporeal reality. In other words, the loss of distinction between one's self and the other, or the dissolution of the labels or ideas that we use to define ourselves. This could refer to our tribal or cultural affiliations, our genetic or species affiliations, or the affiliations we have with tangible reality. We might feel abjection when confronted with the possibility that we are living within a simulation, or with the possibility that our ethnic group is more closely related to another, potentially hated, ethnic group than we were always told. So a sense of abjection is in some ways similar and perhaps even parallel to a sense of the uncanny. The uncanny valley is a term that was originally coined by the robotics professor Masahiro Mori in 1970, but it was first translated into English using the actual words uncanny valley in 1978 in a book called Robots, Fact, Fiction, and Prediction which was written by Josiah Reichardt. Even if you're unfamiliar with the theory of the uncanny valley, you've almost certainly viscerally responded to it at some point in your life. The concept is usually illustrated with an s-curve plotted on a graph, with the initial curve bending upward, followed by a downward curve, followed by a final upward slope. This chart maps our ability to empathize with non-human things, especially non-living non-human things like devices or robots. The horizontal axis of this chart represents how human-like the device or robot in question is. So on the far left side, we have things that look nothing like humans, but as you move a little bit to the right, you get robots like, for instance, Pixar's WALL-E which isn't human-like in the sense of being shaped like a human, but Wally has big eyes, little hands, and moves in an almost animal or child-like fashion. It's not human-like in the sense that you would mistake it for a human, but it has some human characteristics that we find to be cute. The vertical axis represents our ability to empathize with these non-human things. So that initial parabolic upslope, as you move from left to right, represents things like WALL-E, things that are not very human-like, but which have certain human characteristics that we find to be charming, and which as a result allow us to empathize with these non-human things. We demonstrate this same empathy response to all kinds of things, like cars that seem to have eyes or smiles, and even pieces of fruit or appliances that seem somehow charming or whimsical. We treat these non-human things with a degree of empathy and maybe even personify them, imbue them with free will, if only jokingly, because they are, at this point on the chart, somewhere on that upward-sloping parabolic arc. They're just human enough for us to love. Move further to the right on this chart, though, and you hit that downward curve, the negative parabola. This represents certain devices, but almost always more specifically, human-looking robots that might even be mistaken for a human in certain circumstances, but which are not perfectly human. Encountering these types of machines can be disconcerting or even frightening. There's something bizarrely off about them even if they don't move. But if they do, that movement is just one more thing that can seem eerily close to real, but not quite real. It's almost like this thing that we're looking at is some kind of monster pretending to be one of us, and we are catching it in the act, unable to necessarily put a finger on what it is that's wrong, but feeling that something is wrong in our gut. That not-rightness manifesting in a fight-or-flight response or a general sense of unease. The left part of this downward curve includes those animatronic presidents and pirates that you might find at places like Disney World, robots that speak and sing and dance, but all of their movements are jerky, and though they're semi-realistic and shaped like humans, you'd be unlikely to mistake them for a real person if you ran into them in a public place. They're a little eerie, but not truly horrifying. Down at the bottom of that curve, though, are the more realistic robots that are meant to, for instance, show off sophisticated software that companies hope to use when interacting with customers someday. In many cases, these robots look remarkably human and might even sound and act very human, but there's still something there, something not quite right. And you instinctually pick up on this not-rightness, even if you don't know exactly what it is you're picking up on. And because you can't figure out what's wrong with this person, or what seems to be a person, all of your lizard-brain reflexes go on high alert, and you're more wary, more heightened than you would be if faced with even a Terminator-looking robot, or a WALL-E-looking robot, or just a wall, or a pillar, or a laptop that speaks to you, and which has no human attributes of any kind. Robots that seem like robots are easier for us to deal with than robots that almost perfectly, but not quite perfectly, mimic humans. The aforementioned theories about the uncanny apply here. Freud thought such experiences brought out repressed desires, which can be disturbing. Lacan thought it was the mixture of pleasant and unpleasant that made us uncomfortable and Christiva posited that it was the breakdown of our sense of reality that made such encounters so potentially horrifying. There are other theories in this space, though, that are also intriguing and quite possible. Biologically, it may be that we have a core-level automatic response to possible mates That can make encountering someone who seems to be sick, or not entirely there mentally, it can make encountering them a disturbing experience. Our lizard brains might be assessing this robot as if it's a human, because they seem so human-like, and it might subconsciously flag their not-quite-humanness as some kind of genetic issue, which causes us to become uncomfortable so that we don't, well, mate with them, passing on whatever issue they have. To our offspring. There's a similar theory that part of what makes such bots so disturbing to us might be a reflexive avoidance mechanism when it comes to dealing with disease vectors. The robots are behaving strangely, and we are picking up on that strangeness which triggers a part of our brain that helps us keep a safe distance from otherwise normal-seeming people who are maybe sick but don't know it. Beyond the biological possibilities, there are also theories that encountering very human-like robots might make us uncomfortable because it forces an awareness of our own mortality or messes with our sense of uniqueness in some difficult-to-define way. We may also be responding to a conflict in perceptual cues, which causes us to be uncertain as to where this robot exists within our societal hierarchy. How should we behave toward it? Is it a thing? a person or something else entirely. Not knowing how to treat people or things automatically can cause discomfort, even if we wouldn't necessarily recognize a violation of that societal reflex as being the cause of our anxiety. There's a lot of research being done in this space as not just robotics but also fields like virtual and augmented reality do and will continue to rely, at least in part, on being able to create entities with which we empathize. The burgeoning field of virtual assistants are going through a similar phase for which they're trying to ascertain the right level of humanity for Siri and Alexa so that they don't accidentally stumble over a tripwire that evolves their robo-voice interfaces into something vaguely horrifying rather than something charming and helpful that people want to use. But the world of robots, especially those meant to interact Directly with humans. That's the big driver of this type of research at the moment. And there's one particular use case, one particular facet of human to robot interaction that may be driving real world research more than almost any other field, in part because there's a lot of money on the line, and in part because, well, in this area, the humans and robots get about as close as humans and robots can get. Today, I want to talk about sex dolls and the evolving field of sex industry robotics. And just a heads up, there will be some discussion about the human anatomy and sex acts in this episode, along with some discussion about sexual assault and child molestation. Nothing too graphic in any of these cases, but all the same, This episode might not be appropriate or easy listening for everyone, so act accordingly. You're listening to Let's Know Things. I'm Colin Wright. The article I want to unspool today comes from The Guardian. And it's entitled, The Sex Robots Are Coming, Seedy, Sordid, But Mainly Just Sad. That title says a lot, but the first paragraph of this piece also captures the overall tone of the article pretty well, I think. Quote, people say there's no such thing as loving an inanimate object, says James solemnly. I don't necessarily think that's true. James is a 58-year-old from Atlanta, Georgia, and the owner of four life-size dolls. Every morning, he carefully gets them dressed and puts on their makeup. One day, he might take them for a picnic. On another, they'll stay in and watch television. The latter involves a painstaking process where he must bend the dolls into a sitting position and adjust their eyeballs. But that's okay, because there's nothing James wouldn't do for his synthetic companions with whom he shares a bed and has sex up to four times a week." This article outlines the topic of a documentary that's part of a larger series of documentaries by the British broadcaster Channel 4 about different aspects of robotics and AI, artificial intelligence. AI Guy is an in-depth discussion about self-driving cars. Can We Live With Robots is a piece about how humans are already interacting with robots. Trust Me, I'm a Robot, has the former and best, in my opinion, Doctor Who actor, David Tennant, narrating a piece on building robots and AI that people will actually like and trust. And Ask Jess is a documentary about a world in which intelligent robots interact with us as equals. The documentary that this article discusses in depth is called The Sex Bots Are Coming, and it features some of the people who are building these sex doll products, which are slowly but surely evolving into sex robots, and the customers who are eager to purchase them, and in some cases who have already bought a number of sex dolls. Let's get some definitions out of the way and some data on the table. The sex doll industry occupies a spectrum between, arguably, existing devices like the Fleshlight, which is a sex toy for men that is shaped like a flashlight but contains a fake vagina, and dildos, which are simulated penises, all the way to futuristic, currently non-existent products like fully automated, artificial intelligence-powered, real-seeming robots that just happen to also have working sex organs and unlikely proportions. There is a rich history of sex dolls of various types being used by people in cultures around the world and in various time periods, there are paintings of Persian royalty making use of headless sex mannequins. There are records of Dutch sailors using so-called dame de voyages, which were made of sewn cloth or old clothes, and they would use these dame de voyages to keep focused while on long oceanic trips. Some of these Dutch sex dolls were actually sold to the Japanese in the 18th and 19th centuries, and as a result, the term Dutch wife is still sometimes applied to cheap sex dolls in Japan. The sex doll industry really took off, though, in the 1970s as vinyl and latex and silicone hit the mainstream and allowed for a higher degree of realism in these dolls, compared to cloth and rubber, at least. Some of these newfangled dolls were of the inflatable variety. While others were built more like department store mannequins, but much like the inflatable dolls, they had holes where the sex organs would usually be, and they generally had an open mouth as well. It's worth noting that there is also a rich history of male sex dolls portraying the male figure, though they don't seem to be quite as common in the bits of history that have been written down and portrayed in illustrations. Generally, these dolls, instead of holes, have either dildos or inflatable fake penises attached, and in some cases those faux peni will vibrate and expel liquid and perform other various interesting feats as well. It's difficult to find solid numbers about the sex doll industry, as it's often lumped in with sex toys in general which makes sense in a way. After all, where do you draw the line? How much of a human body do you need to replicate in silicone or latex before it's considered a doll? Is a fake vagina in a flashlight part of a doll or something completely separate? What if you have just the lower back and the butt and the lower orifices, which yes, is a product that's available Is that a partial sex doll, or is that something else entirely? Where does the definition of doll apply, and where does it end? So the issue of differentiating sex dolls from other toys, especially those that mimic their component parts, is tricky. But the sex toy industry as a whole is a little bit easier to track. As of mid-2017, the global sex toy trade was estimated to be an approximately $15 billion industry. About a quarter of all adults, globally, are reported to have used a sex toy during sex at some point in their lives, and around 44% of women ages 18 to 60 worldwide have used a sex toy with someone else or solo. About 20% of men have used a vibrator, and the country with the highest percentage of vibrator ownership is New Zealand, coming in at 38%, no pun intended. Amazon, as of September of 2017, had about 60,000 adult items in stock and available for sale. And the most popular sex toys purchased online from all marketplaces are, first, vibrators, second, rubber penises, third, lubrication of some kind, fourth, anal beads, and fifth, penis rings. This is a topic that's mildly or massively cringeworthy, for some people. Here in the U.S. in particular, because of our fairly conservative history with all things sex, it's a common trope on TV shows for characters to attempt to hide their sex toys from friends or relatives who have come to visit them, which of course then leads to hilarious and awkward situations. It's considered to be an embarrassing thing, in mainstream U.S. culture at least, to own and by implication use a sex toy, even though as the numbers show, it's quite common not at all unusual. But the concept of sex dolls, for some people at least, can seem different from other toys, more extreme. They're considered to be more embarrassing or wrong in some difficult to define way. Sex toys can seem empowering, adventurous even. They can be used with a partner or they can allow you to do your own thing, but better. Sex dolls, though, bring to mind a sort of Loneliness, or worse, a sort of pathetic desire for companionship that leads a person to purchase a human doll, a fake body, vacant of anything but air and latex, instead of investing in actual, real, legitimate, maybe even healthy interactions. This bias is obvious, even in this piece from The Guardian. It's right there in the headline, in fact. It calls the people with these sex dolls sad. And perhaps it is sad. Perhaps it's even dangerous, as is sometimes claimed by behavioralists and news commentators. People who own sex dolls are an easy group to mock. Or if we're feeling charitable, they're an easy group to pity. And I want to get into why this is the case for sure and perhaps why it's justified as well but first i want to take a look at this industry and subculture from the opposite angle to view it from a less judgmental perspective and to see where that takes us there are a lot of stats available about the relatively sudden shift in habits for many people across many different demographics, including those of age, socioeconomic class, geography, culture, and so on. And what I mean by that more specifically is that there is a preponderance of data showing that we are, on average, moving more inward, becoming more self-sustaining in a way, not less social necessarily, but less social in traditional ways. Perhaps as a consequence of that, perhaps not. It very well may be just an associative thing, correlative, but without implied causality. We're also seeing an increase in the use of certain technologies, things like smartphones, social networks, apps that allow us to order whatever we want directly to our door, rather than having to go out and get them from the store or a restaurant. It really is kind of a shut-in's dream, the world that we're building. And though all of these technologies can be and are being used socially, to increase our connections and the strength of those connections, to become more extroverted and to improve our experiences out and about in the world, there's a decent amount of evidence that they are also amplifying the opposite. Increasing certain, what we might call, antisocial tendencies, increasing the feeling of loneliness, of not belonging, and even increasing the measured instances of depression and suicide. Now, some important caveats there. It may be that all of these tendencies, even on a large scale, already existed, and we're only now able to measure them better, because guess what? We've got the internet and networks that allow us to collect more and better data. It may also be that some of these stats are overblown, in part because of participation bias, where those who feel they have something to report will be more likely to participate, and because feelings of the kind being measured are more likely to be remembered than the opposite, which may be a more standard experience that is more true more of the time, but those general, just okay days would blend into the background, whereas the really bad days, the depression, things like that, might come to the forefront more often, be more memorable. It's also possible, and I personally think that this is quite likely, that some of these tendencies are not necessarily new realities, but rather an in-between kind of disposition. All of our traditions and norms are predicated on in-person types of community building efforts and traditional networks, like having family members that live nearby and friends from school and work and neighbors who live down the street. And things like that. We don't have these same traditions or the structures to support them, including normalizing them in pop culture, for other newer types of friendships. Maybe friendships with people that you've never met and may never meet, who live in other countries, but who are maybe one of your most vital and treasured friends. So the old school model of relationships are floundering because of the new ways that the world works. But we don't yet have established norms around these new realities, and that can make us feel out of touch or wrong in some nebulous way. When norms and what's considered to be right and good and correct do not align perfectly with the way a lot of people are operating in practice, are experiencing life, there can be a sort of dissonance experienced by those who do not feel that they fit in, who feel like outcasts. And that feeling is sometimes amplified by well-meaning friends and family who want to bring them into the socially acceptable fold. So we try to enforce outdated norms on each other, even as our contemporary norms evolve in new and exciting ways. That's a good formula for cognitive dissonance right there, when the practice conflicts with the theory. But regardless of the reasons behind them, these stats exist and they should be taken seriously. This shift in habits and norms does seem to be a worldwide phenomena. As new technologies continue to become available, our habits continue to change. There are good arguments to be made in favor of real-life in-person social dynamics taking priority over the online digital stuff. There's research that shows we respond differently to touch and vicinity than to camaraderie That exists only in the digital space. Again, we don't know why exactly, and this may be something that disappears with time as those norms that I mentioned shift, but it could also be that we are upright walking smartphone using apes that evolved as tribes, and therefore a lot of our biological systems are optimized for that type of interaction, at least on average. But it could be that rather than trying to force the technology genie back into the bottle, angling all of our apps and networks to prioritize old-school, in-person stuff, rather than the more impersonal digital lifestyle, of which we've been seeing more and more, maybe we should reassess those norms and see if we can serve everyone's needs, rather than just the cultural majority. Maybe instead of trying to convince the shut-ins that life would be better if they went out and interacted with people in real life more frequently, we could try to make their sequestered lives better and more fulfilling using the tools that we have available. Instead of trying to fit all these square pegs into the socially acceptable round hole, maybe we should develop some new shaped holes. And again, no pun intended. I think this perspective that we might want to adjust our standards to fit people, rather than adjusting all of our people to fit just one, perhaps, outdated standard, might be a little more convincing if I analogize the concept using another group entirely because of the stigma that surrounds sex doll enthusiasts one group that comes to mind here, and I'm absolutely not equating this group with sex dolls, by the way. I'm bringing them up to make an adjacent subpoint, so there's no implicit connection here. But when I think about this kind of thing, about being different and not accepted by the mainstream, and not even necessarily being recognized as an official subgroup by the mainstream, I often think about people who identify as asexual. Asexuality isn't the same as celibacy or abstinence. It's more like bisexuality or homosexuality or heterosexuality. It's an orientation. It's considered to be enduring rather than being a decision to not indulge in something that you want to do. Some asexual folk do have sex periodically for a variety of reasons, but in general, what sets this group apart is their general lack of sexual attraction or very low levels of sexual attraction toward other people. Now we could look at this group, those of us who do feel sexual attraction toward others and who have been brought up on stories and folklore predicated on sexual attraction and who have presumably been educated both factually and morally within cultures that have prescribed ways of approaching sexual relationships between people, and we could judge them. We could say, well, that's not normal. That's not right. Those poor people not being able to feel things the way that I feel things. They live very differently from me, me being a pure person of noble soul and endeavors who fits squarely within the acceptable spectrum of levels of sexual attraction toward other people. We should really figure out a way to help these other people, to fix them. And by some standards of morality, that would be the proper thing to do. By others, though, I would argue that it's a well meaning attempt to enforce one set of norms on a group of people who do not share your values, or who perhaps do but have a very good reason for defying them. This is something that, since the beginning of time, we have done over and over and over again to countless groups of people. The current in-group, the majority culture, or the subculture with the most power within a given community, they set the tone for what is proper and good and acceptable and what is undesirable. And the undesirable behaviors and tendencies are then closeted or repressed. Very recent history is awash with such stories of people who are forced to play the role of a different person with different habits and desires because doing so allows them to fit in and to not be looked down upon by society. And they are, in many cases, forced to do this for their entire lives. And some asexual people, I am guessing, might feel those types of pressures. Now, again, I'm not associating anyone who identifies as asexual with sex dolls or anything related to sex dolls. I bring up this other separate unrelated group to demonstrate how easy it is to recognize deviations from what we consider to be the norm and then to try to fix those deviations by forcing realignment to the dominant paradigm, rather than taking a look at each deviation as a separate, perhaps new or new seeming thing, and wondering how we might adjust our sense of normalcy. To allow for it, to include it, to allow the other people in this other, perhaps smaller and less influential group to be happy and fulfilled, even if they get there by taking a different road than we're taking. Instead, we try to force them back in that box to make them more like us. And I'm suggesting that we might be able to do the opposite that we might be able to bend our expectations and norms instead of attempting to bend forcibly, in some cases, these people. So, what might that mean in practice? when applied to some of the groups that we're worrying about right now, or at least some of the groups that the press is seeing fit to worry about for us right now. It could mean, in the case of people who are shut-ins, or somewhere on the highly introverted spectrum, or people who prefer the company of non-humans to humans, it could mean figuring out ways to benefit from communities or non-standard types of connection without forcing them to pretend to be extroverted, and making them feel like outcasts who have to play a role to be accepted it could mean, in the case of people who identify as asexual, swaying public sentiment more positively toward new or less typical types of relationships. What's wrong with being in a close, even romantic relationship with someone and not having sex with them? What's the harm in that? And might there also be benefits to separating the act of sex from intimacy and allowing people to mix and match Friendships and sexual relationships and intimate relationships and lifelong relationships as they see fit. It could also mean, in the case of people who are, for whatever reason, more attracted to or simply more comfortable with inanimate companions like sex dolls, figuring out ways to allow them to do their thing, live their lives in a socially acceptable manner. This, like the other solutions I just mentioned, would require some bending on the part of society, rather than putting all the responsibility for bending on the people who are currently perceived as a part of this out group. Which would not be easy, but it's an angle to this story that isn't very often considered, especially in articles like the one we started from in The Guardian. Even this possibly well-meaning profile slants heavily toward the isn't-this-sad-and-pathetic end of the spectrum, implying that these are people who need to be saved and perhaps ridiculed rather than addressing the possibility that relationships with non-human things like sex dolls might be legitimate. Remove sex from the equation for a moment, and think about how often you interact with your devices, your smartphone, your voice-activated assistant, your computer, And compare that to how often you interact with real people. How much raw time is spent with a device, a piece of technology of some kind, and how much time is spent with another human being? Does the possibility that intimacy with devices might be common in the future seem quite so crazy after you do that math? Is it truly insane, seeming that this trend might continue and that more of us might come to spend more time? With non humans than with humans, and that we might, as a consequence of that, have a wide variety of our needs taken care of by such devices. That, to me, is one of the more salient and convincing arguments, not necessarily in favor of sex dolls becoming mainstream, but at least in attempting to extract the ridicule from conversations about such things. I totally understand the gut level instinct to belittle things that seem wrong, even in an uncanny valley sense of the word, but I also think this is a valid realm of inquiry, and that there are ways to address it without painting those with different priorities, needs, and even masturbatory habits as clowns. I don't think that tact does anyone justice. So, all that said, flipping to the other side, there are some very legitimate concerns about the sex doll industry and the future for which it is potentially a harbinger. Let's start with the issue of these dolls and doll-like objects replacing at least in part actual sex between actual people. If sex dolls become more popular, which is a possibility, especially if they get better and better in terms of quality, it's possible that those who use them, both men and women, could become less interested in sex with other human beings. This is a similar concern to the one we often hear voiced about pornography. Countless articles have been written about how porn is associated with gambling-like tendencies, addiction-like chemical reward behavior in the brain, and even a decrease in gray matter in the brains of people who view a lot of it. You'll also find articles about how viewing porn is correlated with an increase in divorce rates, decreased libido, and increased rates of sexual assault, And increased instances of depression. There is data to back up some of these assertions, or rather, there's at least one data set to back up all of them. But few of them have been replicated to a degree that those who don't have a horse in the race on the issue of porn can be confident in saying that these things are happening as a consequence of porn. Without more replication of the studies, these data points are noteworthy but not anywhere near slam dunks. We need more research on these topics. Now, many of us probably have anecdotal data on the matter, and that will no doubt influence how we choose to see the results of the sparse research that has been done thus far. My knee-jerk response on the topic is that sure, especially if someone watches a whole lot of porn, there's a good chance that they'll probably experience some kind of consequence, be it biological or psychological or social or all three. I don't know how it might affect them, but it seems like it probably would, like any other intense and repeat exposure to some type of biologically titillating media. But guessing about these things and being able to back up our guesses are two very different things. So for the moment, we can't say much, if anything, with any authority. And most of the pieces that do, and you can find a lot of these pieces online, are associated with groups that do have a horse in the race. Mostly religious organizations that have dominated the Google search results for some word combination on the topic. And essentially all of these websites are incredibly anti-porn. So they are working from the same data that we have. They have decided that the data available is enough, but they would probably be saying the same thing either way. Take from that what you will. Now I will link to some of these studies in the show notes, but for the time being, it's probably a good idea to follow the advice of one group of researchers from the University of Montreal, who did a study that indicated that many regular porn viewers are compulsive, distressed, or both, to follow the advice they offered when asked about what their research and the larger body of research about porn seems to say at the moment. Quote, Despite strong social pressure for rapid closure, we should be cautious before concluding that pornography use is universally harmful or beneficial. Our contribution shows that subgroups of pornography users report differential sexual outcomes, end quote. In addition to the data showing that some users experienced the aforementioned compulsiveness and distress, they added, quote, Most of our sample was composed of recreational users reporting positive sexual outcomes, including higher sexual satisfaction, quote. So at the moment, at least... Porn seems to be a bit of a mixed bag. And though there are a lot of pieces of evidence that may add up to something someday, right now it's anybody's guess as to whether this type of media harms or helps, or potentially harms and helps in different ways, those who view it. Now, addictive or not, harmful to one's libido or not, there are some very valid concerns about porn that carry over to sex dolls, and which are potentially even more of a concern. When it comes to the dolls, because of the nature of the product, it being a human simulacra rather than a non interactive piece of media. Porn is often primarily about objectification, it's about simplifying human interactions to just the sexy bits. And that refined existence where everything is about sex, about the act of sex, about the body parts involved with sex, that's the product, that's what they're selling. There's nothing inherently wrong with that, just as there's nothing inherently wrong with, for instance, using a vibrator to get off all by yourself instead of having sex with someone else to do the same. I tend to be a sex-positive, body-positive, even porn-positive person. My bias... Is that these things are just fine so long as there's no coercion involved and the people creating and using them are getting what they want out of the situation, whatever that happens to be. But even coming into the conversation from that perspective, I still think there are issues that are worth exploring more deeply in this space. There are studies that indicate that exposure to porn, to the type of objectification present in a lot of porn anyway, especially at a young age, can influence the way we see each other and the way we see ourselves. And particularly with the way the pornography industry is set up today, a lot of the expectations revolve around certain body types, certain anatomical attributes, certain ways of interacting with each other, specifically sex being a thing that just happens, and certain sex acts being expected, being the default, certain power dynamics being assumed. And though these unrealistic expectations can cut both ways, a lot of them fall far more heavily against women in most situations. Meaning, if a kid is exposed to porn and they don't know anything about anything related to sex, they may come away from that exposure thinking that this is normal, this is how things work in real life, this is what women are valuable for, this is how you treat women, this is how women should treat you. And that can set them up to, first, have expectations that will almost certainly not be fulfilled, and second, to attempt to enforce those expectations on others, perhaps in ways that are harmful to people with whom they come into contact. Again, this is true of boys or girls and men or women. If this is where we are getting our sexual education, and perhaps even our social dynamic and relationship education, There's a lot being left out, a lot that's never taught or not taught in a way that can compete with the produced hyperreality of porn. All of which is to say that porn isn't inherently a bad thing, but it could be a negative influence in certain situations to certain people, especially if those people in those situations lack other, more complete context. And because of the way the world is set up today, many of us, due to our many information silos, of which there are many kinds, do lack a great deal of context about a great many things. Looping back around to sex dolls, what if the only sexual experience or the most psychologically prominent sexual experience a person has is with a sex doll? And what if it's a really high quality doll by the standards of the industry? What might that do to a person's expectations? About sex? How might that influence their concept of what a relationship is, a sexual relationship or otherwise? How might that change their behaviors, the way that they treat others? And is it reasonable to guess, lacking data on the subject, but knowing a bit about how expansive the sex toy industry has become, that a decent number of people might eventually have just such an experience sometime early in their adult lives? Might not some of these people decide that the work involved in building a relationship with a real human isn't worth the effort, or isn't even desirable, potentially, if their standards are established based on that experience with a doll instead of a real person? These could very well turn out to be empty concerns. Some people are actually spurred toward greater effort in their relationships by porn and by individually utilizing sex toys. Some people find their connections with other humans flowering because of the influence of these industries. So who knows, maybe these types of dolls would be more of the same. All these reports and all the concerns I'm expressing here may be nothing more than negative preemptive hype with little substance behind them. But let's say, for the sake of argument, assume for a moment that you are neutral at least. Toward the idea of sex dolls, that they neither seem like the end of the world or the beginning of a wonderful new era. They're just elaborate fleshlights and dildos for all intents and purposes and not worth your concern or much of your attention. Now, that perspective firmly in mind, let me ask you a question. What do you think about child sex dolls? I'll be honest, just saying that phrase makes me uncomfortable. I have a visceral reaction to the concept. It's an incredibly gross idea to me, and it seems like something that shouldn't be part of this larger conversation, because it's not even a potential concern, right? It's got to be illegal or something, right? Well, the answer to that question is complicated. Child sex abuse is illegal essentially everywhere in the world, That doesn't mean it doesn't happen. It most certainly does, and it happens a whole shameful lot even today. But there are mechanisms in place that give governments power to deal with instances of it forcefully when they are able to identify the abusers, which still doesn't happen as often as it should. Child pornography, which is a subcategory of child sex abuse, is explicitly illegal in around 100 countries, and it's illegal in practice in dozens more than that. The organizational bodies that govern the internet have all kinds of regulations in place that illegalize child pornography, and many things that are very similar to child pornography. And in about 60 countries, the punishments for possessing child porn, whether or not you made it or intend to distribute it, are quite severe. But one of the issues that complicates this matter is an issue of definition. At what age does a person cease to be a child? When is someone a legally protected non-sexual being? And where do we draw the line in cultures where, for instance, a person might be considered a child by age, in many respects, but where they can still be married off to a grown man due to religion or tradition and sometimes even law? This is an issue that came up in a fairly dramatic fashion here in the U.S. recently. A Senate candidate from Alabama, Roy Moore, has been accused by several women of initiating sexual contact with them when they were in their teens. Some of these women were 14 years old at the time, when he was in his 30s. The age of consent is different all around the world. It is 16, 16 years old in Alabama though some lawmakers are currently trying to raise it to the more common in most states around the U.S. age of 18. But it can differ wildly from place to place, even across state lines. Roy Moore and some of his supporters have played these claims off like it's much ado about nothing. The liberal elites often their coastal cities don't know how things are done here in Alabama. That's the implied message. And although I'm guessing many people in Alabama would not agree with Moore and what he allegedly did, there is a history and a present in some cases of marrying girls off even when they're below the legal age threshold all around the world. 16 may be the legal age in some places, but in practice, the societally acceptable age might be younger than that. Now, by historical standards, this is not terribly. Anomalous. Go back a few hundred years and this would not have even been a conversation worth having. The modern concept of childhood and of childhood extending until you're around 18 years old, as is the case in most places in the developed world, that's a truly modern convention. It's something that was earned for us during the Industrial Revolution. Having kids that are more likely to survive toddlerhood than not, and having kids that don't need to work in the fields to keep everyone fed, that changed a lot of traditional social dynamics. And the age at which you become an adult, that is one that changed relatively quickly and somewhat dramatically. That said, those changes have been in place long enough that to many people, the concept of a grown man molesting, or even flirting with a 14-year-old girl is grotesque. I bring this up because this same issue Is also playing out in the world of sex dolls, though with some doll specific considerations. There's a man named Shin Takagi, who is, among other things, the founder of a company called Trotla, which makes sex dolls, and a man who is attracted to children. Takagi began making child sex dolls because although he's attracted to children, he did not want to assault a child to ruin a child's life and he didn't want to run afoul of the law either. Guessing that there were other people out there like him, pedophiles who did not want to ever act on their impulses, he began making these dolls and shipping them to clients around the world to help other people do what he was doing to avoid victimizing children because of impulses that they can't control. The data is inconclusive about whether this is actually a solution for people who have such impulses. Of the limited research that is available on this topic, a meta-analysis conducted by the Mayo Clinic indicates that treatments meant to suppress urges like cognitive behavioral therapies and chemical castration do not change the pedophiles' urges. They just limit their ability to act on them to varying degrees. So from the standpoint of seeing such people as unfortunate souls who were born with an urge that they know that they would be horrible monsters if they ever acted upon them, these types of treatments, including, presumably, limiting oneself to using sex dolls, might help them channel that urge, but it probably wouldn't cause the urge to go away. Some researchers, though, go further and claim that things like child pornography and child sex dolls... Could actually reinforce the urges, making them stronger rather than simply diverting them in ostensibly victimless directions. The so called reinforcing effect, which has been noted in research involving child molesters, seems to indicate that rather than easing the tension that pedophiles feel, pornographic images and the like only seem to increase their desire and potentially their likelihood of victimizing children. Many countries now have laws in place that allow them to confiscate child sex dolls as they enter the country. But just like with pornography, they are having trouble in some cases, in which the products in question toe the line between what's legal and what's not, what is obviously pornographic and what is maybe something else. Should it be illegal, for instance, to get a life size doll of a human child? If that doll is not built in the way that sex dolls are built, if it's just a doll of that shape and size, like a store mannequin or a doll that's meant for display, what if it's a product that is the same as every other sex toy on the shelf, let's say a dildo or a fleshlight, but it's labeled in such a way that implies that the fake anatomical feature belongs to a child. Nothing is different about the product in any way. It's the same as every other sex toy that is sold, but the label makes the claim that this is a child's whatever. This is a truly disturbing realm of inquiry for most people, I know, but in this discussion, it's a necessary one to have. Because where do you draw the line on any of this, and who decides when the line seems fuzzy? And how do we draw these lines while still allowing for the possibility of perhaps someday developing some kind of treatment or product that would keep potential child molesters from ever victimizing anyone, even if the solution seems horrible to the rest of us, like in the case of a child sex doll? If the data showed that a certain thing actually worked, might a certain amount of disgust be worth potentially lowering the rate of victimhood for people who would otherwise be victims, I don't know that there are any easy answers here. Finally, let's talk about what's next in this space, and what, if anything, is to be done about some of the lingering general concerns that we might have. First, the writing on the wall in this industry, and the implied lead in most of these articles on this topic these days, is that in the near future, maybe years, maybe tomorrow, far more realistic sex dolls will be on the market. And that means realistic in terms of looks, of being on the upslope right-hand side of the uncanny valley chart, so something that we might be able to empathize with or at the very least not find creepy, and realistic in terms of it being something that could conceivably come to feel like a companion of sorts, a bit like what voice assistants are aiming for and which other types of robots are already managing to do in a rudimentary fashion. There are little fuzzy companion robots being used in some nursing homes, for example, which are shaped like baby seals and which help the residents there by serving the role as pets that can't die and which help remind their humans to take their medication on a regular schedule. These are robots we can empathize with, and it seems likely that at some point, our sex dolls could hit a similar point on the empathy curve. Such a shift could prove to be a turning point for the industry. It could lead to the increased popularity, or at least social acceptability, of sex dolls, or some spin-off technology that's similar but better. It could be useful to imagine what that might be like ahead of time. To imagine yourself finding some kind of home robot that is helpful and even beloved in some way, And imagining how that entity might fit into your life and how that might feel to have that type of relationship with a non-human thing. It also might be useful to imagine how you might respond upon learning that someone that you care about and who you know, finding out that they own a sex doll or a sex bot, and how you might respond to that. Second, there are all kinds of parallel movements in this space happening around the world. So while in the US and the UK and most of Europe, Commonwealth states, these are still relatively novel products, in other places they're either more common or seen as serving or potentially serving some vital societal role. In Barcelona, Spain, for instance, there is a robot sex doll brothel filled with dolls that apparently have sensors at various places around their body so that they respond to different types of touch and movement. The maker of these dolls also claims that they behave differently with clients who are friendly and who treat them well, because there's a kind of programmed moral code built into its responses. In China, an Uber of sex dolls app called Ku arrived on app stores only to be shut down soon after going viral. This app then refocused on selling sex dolls instead of renting them out, and apparently that was enough so that the government allowed them to keep functioning. This app is seen by some as a means of tempering some of the downsides of China's missing women problem. Because of their years using the one-child-only policy and their cultural preference for male offspring, China finds itself with a severe gender imbalance. As of January 2017, they are estimated to have 33.5 million more men than women, and though they changed their policy to allow for two children instead of just one in 2015, the disparity between genders is expected to continue widening for a while. The thinking here is that when you have a bunch of of coming-of-age, or of-age, young men who not only have no romantic prospects today, but statistically may never have any romantic prospects, you create a fairly flammable situation that could result in discord and even public disobedience. And the Chinese government is all about avoiding that kind of thing. Hence, To dodge those types of consequences, and to avoid other less desirable solutions like increases in sex trafficking, or the revival of wife-sharing in the country, which is something that has been proposed by a Chinese professor, the government has been lax in enforcing severe standards on this industry as a partial solution. And the sales numbers seem to back up the assertion that this could be at least a possible solution, or part of a larger solution, of the $15 billion global sex toy market. The Chinese sex toy market alone is somewhere in the neighborhood of $2 billion. And third, it's important to remember that although the market is heavily focused on a male audience at the moment, The sex toy industry is a $15 billion market, and the sex tech industry, which overlaps with the sex toy industry a bit, is worth an estimated $30 billion. So just like so many other things, like cars and artificial hearts, which were initially designed with men in mind, but eventually expanded their markets when they stopped being so dude-centric... There's a huge market here for women as well, and there are a few companies who are apparently building something to address that market, but it looks like, for the moment at least, this is largely a segment of the sex toy industry for guys. So what are we to do with all this information? I... Tend to try to keep my personal preferences out of other people's business when it comes to just about everything, very much including sex, sex toys, masturbation, relationships, and everything else anywhere adjacent to this topic. But even so, this subject doesn't feel super clean cut to me. I would never kink shame anybody for being into different stuff than I am, but I do wonder, societally, If this is a positive thing to normalize, especially in the more extreme cases, like with products that celebrate violence against women, or that involve children, if these were definitely a means of pulling those negative attentions away from real people, resulting in fewer human victims, that would be one thing. But since we can't say that for sure, and we can't even say for sure that these things do not amplify those types of problems, that keeps them relegated to a moral gray zone for me. But at the same time, I try to imagine myself as someone who feels strongly for a doll or other device of this kind, in the same way that I might feel strongly for a beloved human being. And that flips the script a little bit. Again, at least in the context of the non-extreme side of this industry. Who am I to tell this person That they can't have this thing in their lives and also live a normal life alongside that. Who am I to judge where other people find their happiness, especially when they're not hurting anyone else, not hurting other human beings in their pursuit of that happiness? I'm not going to get into the ethics of artificial intelligence, maybe becoming sentient and asking itself why it should suffer under the burden of sextal responsibilities in this episode. That's a much bigger topic and not something that we'll have to worry about in the immediate future, most likely. But I will leave you with one more thought about this topic and about the world of technology in general. If we decide that sex dolls are not an immediate threat, or at least not enough of a threat to risk taking away people's freedoms in order to curtail their availability, but we do determine That they could be a threat in some secondary or tertiary, some distant way. Like maybe they become so good, so realistic, so unbelievably sexy that we all get one and we cease to have sex with each other, resulting in a cataclysmic decrease in the global population. Is that theoretical, long term threat a legitimate justification to curtail modern day freedoms, to take away all the sex dolls? Or, said another way, How many degrees of separation must a problem be from a perceived cause before we can no longer legitimately identify that as the cause, or at least not enough that we can morally justify doing something about it? I don't know the answer to these questions, but it's certainly worth thinking about. The book that I'd like to recommend today is called Scale, and the subtitle is The Search for Simplicity and Unity in the Complexity of Life from Cells to Cities, Companies to Ecosystems, Milliseconds to Millennia. This book is by Jeffrey West. This is a book of epic proportions. It's decently long, but it's epic in that it's very dense, and it covers a whole lot of ground. And there's some general concepts that kind of take you from beginning to end, but the way these concepts are applied across so many different systems is impressive in terms of scope. And to give you an idea of what I mean by that, let me read a piece of the book Summary from Goodreads. "...fascinated by issues of aging and mortality, West applied the rigor of a physicist to the biological question of why we live as long as we do and no longer. The result was astonishing and changed science, creating a new understanding of energy use and metabolism. West found that despite the riotous diversity in the sizes of mammals, they are all, to a large degree, scaled versions of each other." If you know the size of a mammal, you can use scaling laws to learn everything from how much food it eats per day, what its heart rate is, how long it will take to mature, its lifespan, and so on. Furthermore, the efficiency of the mammal's circulatory system scales up precisely based on weight. If you compare a mouse, a human, and an elephant on a logarithmic graph, you find with every doubling of average weight, a species gets 25% more efficient and lives 25% longer. This speaks to everything from how long we can expect to live to how many hours of sleep we need. Fundamentally, he has proven the issue has to do with the fractal geometry of the networks that supply energy and remove waste from the organism's body. End quote. And so he takes those same concepts of fractal geometry and logarithms and applies them to businesses, to cities, to show relationships between different scales. It's really, really fascinating, and it's something that, if you're like me, you'll probably get sucked into it and appreciate the new way of looking at the world and seeing the connections therein. Again, that book is called Scale, and the author is Jeffrey West. You can find out more about me and my work, including a list of the books that I've written, at Colin.io. You can read my blog at exilelifestyle.com. And you can find the show notes for this episode and every episode of the podcast at letsknowthings.com. Feel free to reach out and say hello on your social network of choice. Most places I am at Colin is my name. Thank you so much for listening. I am Colin Wright, and I will talk to you again next week.